this morning. And before we do, let's just uh, pray again. I was reading a thing. I don't know how many of y'all take table talk from R.C. Sproul's ministry. Look at their ministries, but uh, they had a their weekend devotional. They have a they have a scriptural devotional five days a week, and then they have a guest write a column for the weekends. And this guy was from uh, Nine Marks Baptist Church. He's on the staff there in Washington D.C. And he wrote about what their service was like, about uh, how much prayer was uh, put into the church service. It's amazing. They had like five different times they prayed together, and he said it would. And and the the boundaries they he gave for the time for their prayer was anywhere between twelve and twenty six minutes. They had like I thought, wow, isn't that something to have that much corporate prayer every time you get together? So uh, probably have a lot of people wouldn't show up. I guess if you prayed that much, but that's amazing, isn't it? And then twenty six minutes together corporately, That's that's a lot of prayer. And uh, I think the the shortest prayer they had was like maybe two minutes, and then they had some that would go up to 10 or 12 minutes, and then they had some, some that were intermediate in length. and the, So that's, that's an extraordinary thing. So anyway, let's pray again. Father, we uh, come to you today. Lord, we recognize that, that we are desperate, God, that we are in need of you, and that you are very generous, God. We remember this great thing that uh, the apostle said, that you didn't spare your own son, but you gave him up for us, and that you'll give us all things with him. Father, we pray that we might know what it is to possess all things in Christ Jesus, even as He possesses us. God has redeemed and purchased us that we would really return the favor, God, learning to love You, learning to desire You as He has desired us and given Himself up in order to bring us into relationship with You. God, we thank You for Your Word. God, it's uh, so sharp, it's living, it's active, it speaks powerfully. We pray again, God, that that it would do its good work in us. God, you sanctify us by the washing of the water of this Word. So come and apply it to us. Holy Spirit, we, we desire your ministry this morning, that you would find in us uh, receptacles that are yielded and eager and thirsty. Come and satisfy the needs that we have and help us to yearn for more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in chapter 5 and we're kind of in the well, we're past the midway point, I guess, of the, this chapter. Uh, Orlando and I have to get together for the next couple of three weeks probably and try to figure out how to, to uh, d- divide up the next couple of chapters. I think it'll be difficult to, to try to do chapters 6 and 7 in one semester, so we may have to, I don't know what Orlando's schedule is going to be, we may have to stretch it out longer. than uh, Can't get down to one verse per week, although it probably needs that. But anyway, we'll fix an outline for the next, next semester. We're in uh, verse 27, chapter 5. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here we come to these, uh, this continuation of Jesus' sermon. He introduces the sermon, you know, going backwards a little bit, by uh, 
showing the character of the people that live in the kingdom of heaven, defining them as, as those that fit the bill in terms of the Beatitudes. So all of those eight statements about uh, people that are blessed apply to all people that are in the kingdom. It's not just eight categories of folks, you know, we, we've talked about that, but it's, but it's us, those who belong to Jesus, who he's called himself, who he's blessed, then that's the character and somewhat of the, the conduct, but primarily the character and those beatitudes of what those people are like. So we are very different than the world, aren't we? When you read through those, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, you know, for, for they will be what? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so he says things that the world just doesn't agree with. You know, the world is all about, my Bible school director used to say, uh, uh, some people's idea is to get all you can, can all you get, sit on the, sit on the lid and poison the rest. You know, and, and that's, that's, that's really kind of the world's mentality in a lot of ways, isn't it? But the people that are in the kingdom of God, they're absolutely flipped. They're different. They turn the world upside down. They turn it right side up, actually. But, but to the world's uh, ethic, it's totally different. So Jesus defines the, the character of the people as he starts his sermon out. And then he talks about how that character will lead them to be so different that they'll be like salt for preserving They'll be like light for illuminating and bringing glory to God in the environment where God plants them. And then he talks about how he comes to fulfill all righteousness. And so we looked at that about how he had submitted himself, came down, born of a woman, born under the law, and how he came and and did everything that God requires of us. And God requires absolute perfection, doesn't he? There'll be nothing imperfect in heaven. And Jesus is the only one that fit that bill. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. And he did all of that. Not to show off, not because he needed to do it, but because we had to have it done if there was going to be any reconciliation, if there was going to be any openness in God's heart toward us. And so he fulfilled that, fit that bill. And so we, by believing in him, become partakers. And then we, then we kind of back up and start living out through the Beatitudes because there never comes a time really when, when uh, we become rich in spirit, is there? except in the sense that we abide in Christ Jesus, and so we have access to His richness. But we'll continue to be people that are having to go and return to those Beatitudes over and over and over. And so in this, this, this passage we looked at, and in fact, there's six instances in chapter 5 where Jesus will take these life circumstances, things that we run into, th- things that we see people run into, and He will lay down principles for how those who fit the bill of the Beatitudes, those who are salt and light, how they will behave in circumstances. And it's always a principle. It's not a, it's not a, you know, a law for this, a do this, do that. Isn't it interesting to want to know the will of God? You ever want to know the will of God? Kind of, kind of a daily basis type thing, really, isn't it? But have you ever sought, you know, really in your life, maybe made a, a definite big life change? Sometimes it's vocationally, sometimes it's... Uh, uh, relationally, sometimes it's financially, sometimes it's physically. And, and when you make those decisions, if you're a believer, you really want to step where God wants you to step, don't you? You want to be where He wants you to be. But God doesn't give those kind of directions specifically. He didn't say, turn to Hezekiah chapter 8, verse 97, when looking about where you should work. Wouldn't that be handy? But He doesn't give those kind of directions, does He? But he does give this tremendous body of wisdom and the Holy Spirit so that we can apply the Word of God to discern what it is that's going to glorify God and what might fit the bill. And so we can step into areas with confidence that this, this is going to bring glory to God. You know? 
And even if it doesn't turn out well, that doesn't mean it wasn't the will of God, necessarily. And so when we come to this, this chapter, Jesus uses these six different situations, and he, and he keys them with two phrases. You have heard that it was said, and then, but I say to you, so where were they hearing these things? But you have heard that it was said, where's that coming from? Where? The Pharisees who what? Misinterpret, misunderstand, and misapply the law across the board. But the unique thing about this is they are the paramount figures of religion in the first century Palestine. So what they say has been bought into as correct, right? There, people look up to the Pharisees, to the scribes, to the Sadducees, to the Sanhedrin in particular. These guys are setting the pace. This is what's right. But Jesus said, no, that is what's wrong. You've heard it said this way, but I say to you. And so Jesus comes to fulfill the law and the prophets, and he is the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18. God will raise up another from your midst, a prophet like me, only much greater. That's quoted twice in the book of Acts once in chapter 3 and once in chapter 7, that Jesus came to be the prophet par excellence. Is that how you say that? I looked it up on Google's par excellence. But I think they were from Texas. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that's a French phrase. Par excellence. Don't you like the way the French speak? Instead of saying less miserables, <laughs> they say les miserables. You know. No, that's less miserable. So anyway, par excellence, Jesus comes and he's the prophet. There's not a word that he speaks that falls to the ground. He fulfills the law and the prophets. He gives full meaning to what the law's intent is. And it's always about the heart, isn't it? It ultimately comes down to the heart. We find this in reading Paul because Paul says, man, I, I went through the commandments. I'm, I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm the one that was after it harder than anybody. And I got down at one day, I was reading through the Ten Commandments again. And I got down to number 10. And it said, you shall not covet. And he said, it broke me open. Because I realized all the externals that I'd been doing did not fit the bill. I wasn't in right standing with God. Because my religion had been all external. I'd done everything to a T. I'd dotted all the I's. But I'd coveted. I was guilty before God. James says if we break one of those commandments, we've shattered the whole. And Paul realized that. And so the, the law was never, never about externals. But that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees, the Sadducees, had made it all about. It was all about externals. That's so easy to slip into, isn't it? And to feel good about ourselves because we've done this. So I write the check. Oh, man. You know, so easy to feel good about being generous to the missionary. But it's not about feeling good, is it? It's about glorifying God. It's about what commandment one, because if you go all the way down to coveting, Paul says, coveting is the sin of idolatry. We've put something else in God's place. Our desires, our intents have become the God we worship. And when Paul saw that, he said, man, this, this devastated me. But it also turned him around to, to see. And so when Jesus comes, he said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and so he uses these six instances, and it's easy, they're broken out in paragraphs. So we're going to try to handle two of them at once, which is, this is just overwhelming. 
it's overwhelming to read the Sermon on the Mount and to think I'm going to try to teach it. Isn't that an astounding thing? Try that sometime because I think Jesus did a pretty good job at it. Yeah. And so I, I borrow, I, I've been using as a resource a book that I've recommended to you, the uh, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, which is a great book to read. I, I'd encourage you to read it. It's, this guy is so penetrating. Uh, and I really borrowed heavily from his because when I looked at this particular passage, I thought, man, this is, this is hard, God. I got 40 minutes, you know, maybe to, maybe 40 minutes, 35 minutes to talk about this passage. And, and one verse needs, you know, a lifetime of unpacking. But anyway, we're going to give it a shot. So he comes to this point where he says again, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart. How many men are guilty of that? Any women here guilty of looking at a guy? Well, sure. You remember 1976, the year of the evangelical? On the front of Time magazine, they had a smiling Jimmy Carter. Remember that? And they'd interviewed him during the campaign. And he, if... This guy is a devout Jesus follower. You know, you might not like his politics, but this guy loves Jesus. And they're interviewing him, and they ask him, he said, some, some reporter, probably a religious reporter, said, have you ever committed adultery? Well, that's a great question. Isn't it? He said, yes, I have. He said, I've looked on other women with lust in my heart. Jesus said, the intent of the law is that you not covet your neighbor's wife or their donkey. Now, I've never had a problem with donkeys. <laughs> We used to have a donkey that lived down the street from us, and he takes a, oh, oh, and they, when they get cranked up, it's better than a siren. But, uh, but at any rate, if, to look, to lust after something, to desire something that somebody else has, that's, that's not living up to the standard. Jesus lived up to the standard. He did. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. But you and I haven't. We haven't done it. And we, we are incapable of doing it. At some point, we fail. But Jesus still represents us. He still clothes us. We're still covered in His righteousness. We're still declared holy because He is holy. And He's done these things for us. And we grow in this holiness. But this, this sermon is very convicting, isn't it? I mean, it, if you read this with, with an open heart, this is a very convicting sermon. And so He says, you're not supposed to do that. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Boy, eyes are precious, aren't they? It envisioned a wonderful gift Wow, be hard to be blind. I just can't imagine it's hard to go blind. I think of my granddad who had macular degeneration and they couldn't really prevent it degrading and he'd always been a voracious reader, you know, and he got to where he couldn't read anymore. He couldn't even watch TV. He couldn't mow his lawn. He liked to mow his lawn until he was in his late 80s. You know, he couldn't do that anymore. And what a, what a tremendous loss. But Jesus says, listen, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck that sucker out and throw it away. Or if you're right hand, the right hands are valuable, aren't they? Unless you're a lefty. You know, if you're left-handed, you're sinister. That's the meaning of being left-handed in the Greek. So my wife's sinister. So anyway, but you're right, and that, that's a valuable portion of your anatomy, isn't it? Your right hand, wow. Jesus said, if it causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better to enter into life maimed than to go to hell whole. Right? So Jesus is talking to us about 
not just in this instance, not just in the idea of lust, but in the whole, the whole concept, this principle of sin. Sin is extremely serious. Extremely serious. Sometimes we don't think about it. It's, kind of, it's not, I put in a parenthetic statement there, it's not in vogue anymore to talk about sin. They'll interview major church leaders sometimes. And they don't want to call anything sin. They don't even like to use that word sometimes. When I was in seminary, I had professors that, that, that didn't like to use the word sin. That was such a harsh term. Well, if we don't, if we don't know about sin, we're never really going to appreciate God and love Him more and more, knowing what He did in order to get rid of that stuff. And we'll not understand how serious it is that we fight against it tooth and nail every day. And we'll begin to get cozy with sin. And then God's not going to be glorified, is He? If we, if we buy into sin, if we start living like the culture, if we quit being salt and light because we begin to practice the same principles of this age, then we can't light anything up. We can't salt anything. We just become like the medium that we live in. And so Jesus wants us to understand that, that sin is extremely serious. I wrote some things down here about the doctrine of sin. So it reveals why Christ came and why he had to die on the cross. Because everything's broken. Sin is in the world. So Jesus had to come because there was sin in the world. He didn't come, you know, say, this is the way, you know, come on, walk this way, do these things, and everything's going to be hunky-dory. No, he came to die because sin had corrupted all creation. It corrupted the human heart. So everything we think is perverse, but God's given us His Word to change our minds. So we're, we're always reforming, aren't we? We're always walking in repentance. We're always being changed from one degree of glory to the next. And we need it because we're, we're so broken. And this is the, the doctrine of sin tells us this. It provides the correct conception for and informs the work of evangelism. Why would we evangelize if there's no sin? Just so people can have a, a more full-orbed life? And, you know, build their industry and have more accoutrements, you know, that goes with a modern world view, you know, and all those. No, that's not why we evangelize. We evangelize because of the horror of sin, that people need to be saved from sin. They need to be reconciled to God because hell is real. And if they use their right eyes, if they use their right hands to do things contrary to the will of God, they'd be better off, you know, to pluck those out and to cut that hand off than to go on in that way. And so it informs our evangelism. You know, there's nobody that's needier than another. Sometimes we, I don't know, maybe you don't do this, but I, I think this, that person looks really needy. But in, in essence, ultimately, everybody is at the same level of neediness before God. We're all sinners, we're all broken. And so the one who sins must die. The wages of sin is death. That's it. There's not somebody that escapes that, you know, because they've, Learn to, you know, it's not like Jesus didn't come to say, I'm here to lead you to the best life now. That's not what he came for. He came to lead us out of this present evil age that's corrupt because of sin and to bring us into becoming participants in the divine life. And so sin really informs why we do evangelism, why we're here. You know, why each week somebody climbs up that pulpit in there, preaches a sermon, preaches the good news of the grace and the mercy that are found in Christ Jesus. It's the basis for a true understanding of holiness, not just abstinence from sinful habits. That's not, that's not holiness. Not, you know, it's easy to kind of get that. Well, I avoided that temptation. I didn't do that and to feel good about it. Well, there's a sense in which that's right, that we fought off the temptation. We didn't yield to it. 
But then we don't feel better about ourselves because that happened. That's not the ultimate reality. It's that we yielded to Jesus more deeply. He gets more glory because we've put sin off. And, you know, you think about uh, the sins that we might participate in. Some are, some are more noticeable, Paul tells Timothy, and others kind of hide behind, trail behind us, you know. But the ones that are more noticeable aren't any worse than the ones that are kind of hidden, that are more culturally accepted. You know, sin is sin. And if we break one law, we've broken them all. And so this whole idea of holiness being our behavior, it's like Kim was saying this morning about smoking cigarettes. You know, that was a great, great comeback by that guy, wasn't it, in Young Life? You know, we're here to save their hearts, not their lungs. In fact, I think David Wilkerson said, no, smoking won't send you to hell, but it might get you to heaven quicker. (laughs) So I heard another story about that. Uh, Chuck Smith, the guy that founded Calvary Chapels out of the Jesus movement in the early 70s in Southern California, his his church began to grow, and he got all these these long-haired beach hippies started coming to his church, and they just were going barefoot, you know, and they weren't all that well-kept. And some of his deacons came to him and said, Pastor Chuck, we've got a we got a problem. He says, what is it? He says, these kids are coming in here, and their dirty feet, are, we're getting the carpet all dirty, they're sticking their toes up in the communion cup holders, you know, during the service and stuff. <laughs> this is a true story. He said, what are we going to do? He said, tear the carpet out. Tear the carpet out, because holiness is not about externals, is it? It's about the heart. It's about the heart. And so, this is what... Jesus is getting across is the fact that sin is not about your right hand. It's not about your right eye. It's a heart issue. And our heart informs us and inspires us to, to go after, you know, either the good or the bad. So God gives us a new heart. So it reveals the depth and the extent of God's love. So the more that we understand the depth of our sin and we see the mercy that's in God, the more will our heart long for Him, to know Him, to be yielded to Him, to give up to Him, because He loved us so much that He was willing to take this on Himself. He becomes sin. He hates sin. God hates sin. He can't stand it. He can't abide it. But He comes down and He begins to wear it. He becomes it on the cross, you know. He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because He's become our sin. All the sin that we've sinned, that we will sin, all of it, all the sin of all humanity for all time, Jesus bore the penalty for that in his body on the cross. Now, that's love, isn't it? That is an amazing love. And that he would do it for us. I mean, knowing us, knowing what we're like, knowing that when he died, he's dying not just for what we have done. I did some pretty bad stuff before I was awakened, before I saw Jesus and understood who he was. But I've done some pretty bad stuff since then. Yeah. I still have hard issues that are out of order. But the more that I understand the depth of my sin and realize the covering of Christ Jesus, the more I want to join the fight and push sin away, you know, and whatever it takes to get it out of my life, you know. If it takes not reading that particular magazine anymore, well, that magazine's got to go. If I can't watch that show anymore, well, good riddance to that show. If I can't listen to that person talk anymore because of the, where they go and what they're, what they're speaking about, then... That relationship has to be dropped. Those things have to fall by the wayside in order to pursue the real holiness of Jesus of heart. And so it's easy, isn't it, to get enculturated. Denise and I like to go to the show sometimes, not too often because there's nothing much on that we want to see. But, but you read the reviews of movies, you're going, man, I don't need to see that. You know? 
Or you pick up a book. My wife is, I really like the way she treats books. She's a voracious reader. She's always reading two or three things at once at least. And so she gets these books, and I've seen her so often get a book, and she loves to read. She just, I mean, she loves it. And I've seen her get a book, and she'll get into it about, you know, a chapter or something. She says, I can't read that. I can't read that. I can't. She sure couldn't read Fifty Shades of Grey, but I mean, she just reads something that, you know, that's just a little off color. I can't read that. Yeah. Because her, her conscience is just so tender. And it's by the Holy Spirit. It's tender. She wants to honor God. And she probably wouldn't put it in those words every time, but that's exactly what's going on. Yeah. And so when those things offend our sensitivities is those who match the Beatitudes, then we need, to, we need to pluck them out. We need to put them aside. We need to get them out of the way because what happens is it steals the energy of our lives that we're to use to glorify God and to honor Him. It begins to steal away some of that energy. It's kind of like living. Have you ever, you ever had to work through a sickness? Probably all have, you know. NFL players go out there and they play with their leg taped up to their back. Ah, I'm not hurting. You know? Well, we all, we all live hurt, don't we? And sometimes you, you're sick, I mean physically sick, and you've got to do something, you just go ahead and do it, you know. But you're, you know that it's not the best, but it's got to get done. That's what happens when we entertain those things that we should get rid of. Our life is like living with a fever, and it just it steals away, it saps our energy because we're holding on to something. We're allowing something to invade our space and our heart that Jesus says, cut it off, let it go, get rid of it. You know? Sin is serious. I came to die for it. I came to free you from its penalty. I came to free you from its power. But it has to be worked out with us and the Holy Spirit. And we have to begin to put to death the deeds of the flesh. In this case, he's using this example of lust. We don't have to commit adultery. We just have to be lustful. So it's serious. It's a disease. Sins are the symptoms. We're sin- you know, we are sinners, and so we sin. That's just the way it is. It's been that way since the garden. We sin because we're sinners. Self-control is not synonymous with holiness. We might be able to, to push something off for a while, you know. But if, it's, if, we're still, if we're not dealing with the heart issue, if we're not pulling up the root, if we're not cooperating with the Holy Spirit to get rid of that, it's just going to keep coming back, keep coming back, and likely says we'll collapse to it. Sin perverts, it twists everything about humanity, even, even everything in creation, but especially we're talking about humanity created in the image of God. And so here we are bearing his stamp, and then that's been really demolished and broken. And so every bad thing, I've thought about this, thought about a lot of different ways, but I've thought about this. You know, some people maybe are born genetically predisposed to homosexuality. Does that make it right? No. Because sin is in the earth. And sinners conceive sinners, don't they? When two sinners get married. Did you all ever marry a sinner? <laughs> My wife did. And so we had three beautiful little sinners. <laughs> in 1975, 1979, and 1990, we had three beautiful little sinners. Because that's all sinners can produce. That's all we can produce. And so genetically, when the fall occurred, everything broke. Genetically, it broke. Geologically it broke. Morally it broke. Everything broke. And everything is stained with sin. People predisposed to alcoholism or addiction. All kinds of things. They're born that way. Probably are born that way. Not always, but probably some of them are born that way. Does it make it right that they're born that way? No. We're born sinners. Jesus came to redeem sinners by giving himself in their place to do away with the penalty of that sin that is incurred and then to help 
by the power of the Holy Spirit to put to death the power of sin. One of these days, when we see Jesus face to face, then the presence of sin will be dealt with. Won't that be phenomenal? That'll be, that'll be one of the best things in heaven is no more sin. No more, no more temptation to sin. Totally new. Everything made new. Sin perverts, twists everything. Sin is destructive. I already said that. Wages of sin is death. So how are we going to deal with sin? Jesus said, well, cut off your hand. Pluck out your eye. Be a bunch of one-handed blind people, wouldn't there? But literally, people used to do that, you know? Early on, people used to do things like that. They would mutilate themselves trying to cut out the sin. But sin's a matter of the heart. You can't cut that out. So we realize we're sinful. I guess we do. Realize we're, we're sinful even when we're not sinning. We're always clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We never live beyond, above grace or mercy. We need the clothing of Jesus' righteousness. You know, Billy Graham, 99 years old, sitting in his den in North Carolina. He needs the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ as much now as when he was 17 and got converted as a teenager. He doesn't need it any less. He doesn't need it anymore. He needs it. We need it. We have to have it. Because God is merciful, we're not consumed. Even as believers, because He's merciful, we're covered in the righteousness of Jesus. We're made holy in Him. And we're working that out. We're growing up into that, that clothing. So, the value of our soul, its eternal destiny, trump everything else in priority. Jesus said, if you gain the whole world and you forfeit your soul, what did you gain? Well, nothing. You lost everything. I heard Jack Hayford one time preaching. He was talking about... Uh, how long eternity is? It's a long time, isn't it? And it gets, and like Woody Allen says, it gets really long near the end. <laughs> but he said, you know, he said, think about this. He said, if a sparrow was to take a grain of sand from the beach of the Pacific Ocean and take that grain of sand and fly with it to the most distant star and come back and get the next grain, and fly with that grain to the most distant star, and do that until he had moved the earth in its entirety from here to the most distant star. Eternity has only begun. Eternity's a long time, isn't it? It's timelessness. This is the priority. This is the destiny of our soul, to live in the presence of God forever and ever, free from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. Sin has to be dealt with. It's going to be dealt with. It has been dealt with. But now it's being dealt with in this age because we are being prepared for eternity. So if we gain everything this world has, Jeff Bezos just trumped $100 million. He might be the first trillionaire. Give him another six months, he'll be worth $5 trillion, You know. And I don't know, Jeff. I bought a few things from Amazon. I guess that's our connection. But you know, if he gains more than that, if he gains everything, I've read that Vladimir Putin is probably the richest man in the world, so he's somewhere up there. Maybe he's half a trillion bucks already. Who knows? But if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul, you profit nothing. So Jesus said, put the deeds of the flesh to death. Put them to death. So... Let me read this to you. There's a lot of places in the New Testament that we could look, and, and they're very similar. But the apostle makes these, these kind of emphases. 
If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What a great place to be hidden. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here then is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So really, the the freedom we have is in forgiveness and love, isn't it? Which which is a real clue to this next little section where he talks about divorce. You know, they totally misinterpret the law. They're giving a certificate of divorce to their spouse. Men are sending their wives off because they find some uncleanness in them, incompatibility. Well, you know, make it easier and easier. But Jesus said it was never meant to be this way. A man and a woman should become one flesh and glorify God. So what do you do with your enemies that offend you? You forgive them. How much more a spouse? There's no necessity for divorce, Jesus says. But because of the hardness of our heart, God has granted for adultery, for fornication, for any sexual sin, He's granted a certificate of divorce. But it was not like this to begin with. It was not like this to begin with. So as believers, those are salt and light in the earth. We should live in a way that really exposes that kind of darkness. That there is. There is love. There is forgiveness. There is mercy. There is healing. Why would we expect governments and corporations and other entities to keep their word if as Christians we won't even keep our vows of the wedding? So Jesus said, but because of your hardness of heart. So it's not the unforgivable sin to be divorced, but it's very damaging to people, and it's bad testimony. But Jesus is certainly merciful to those who have called upon his name to continue to call upon his name. So where did we get to? We're almost finished. So we're called to hate and fight sin, not simply feel bad when we fall to temptation. Holiness is a positive pursuit. It's getting to be more like Christ Jesus. It's an appetite to know Him. It's an appetite to go after Him. It's an appetite to, that causes us to, to beat our body into subjection, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Not, not shadow boxing, you know, not, not fooling around, but really putting a, a twist on our soul so that we don't pursue the, the deeds of the flesh. So here's some tools in the conflict. Don't read, listen to, watch, or pursue things that feed the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. It's like that old deal, I don't think it's true, but you always heard this when you're, everybody's probably heard this story. If you put a frog in a, in a pan of water and you turn the heat up slowly, you know, he's going to be boiled alive. Well, that's a dumb frog, but, you know, I don't even think that's true. But we, you get the picture. Well, we live in a culture that's just perverse. It's perverse in every way. It's perverse in its financing. It's perverse in its sexual mores. It's perverse in interpersonal relationships. 
You know, you, you see how, you know, it's just perverse, isn't it? Isn't it a wreck? It's like Kim was saying, you know, five more years and won't recognize it. Well, we don't recognize it from ten years ago, do we? What a difference, you know. Just downhill on a sled. Just it greased. You know, we're just going downhill. And it's so perverse that it's easy not to pay attention. We have to stay alert. We have to stay sober. We have to be watchful because our adversary, he's patient. He's very patient. And so he just waits on us and just turns a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. I'm always amazed how many evangelical believers have begun to believe that homosexuality is okay. Did you know they just did a survey? It was a, I think it was a Gallup survey. 62% of Americans, 62% of Americans believe that worshiping any God is the same thing. It'll all take you to the same place. 62%. A lot of those people have to be church people. They believe that. They bought into that lie. Where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. And nobody is going to come to the Father by me. Nobody's going to make it. So we have to watch and pray. We have to stay alert. We have to think often and deeply on Christ's love. And it's like, kind of like John Piper says, what a terrible thing to have to meditate on grace all the time. You know, what a terrible thing to have to meditate on grace all the time. But it's not a terrible thing, is it? But to consider, to think, to, to look upon Christ Jesus, as Kim was saying, the beauty of Jesus on the cross this morning, thinking about what He's done for us and how He ever lives making intercession for us, that continues to, to keep us alert. Then receive the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if you ask and keep on asking, if you seek and keep on seeking, if you knock and keep on knocking, the Father will give you the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so we have this power that's resident in us, the third person of the Godhead, but we have to call upon we have to yield to Him. We have to ask Him to continue to help us. Because if we grieve Him, and He's the one that bears witness to God's love for us, then we're quiet in His voice. I read a book one time called uh, Your Heavenly Father Loves You by a guy named Robert Frost. Not the poet, but he was a professor down at the University of Houston. And I remember this statement I read in there, and he said, We quench the reassuring witness within of the Holy Spirit when we confess the lies of our adversary rather than the promises of our high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. So to meditate upon Christ Jesus, to meditate upon His words, upon His deeds, what He's done for us, gives us energy, gives room for the Holy Spirit so that we can fight against temptation, so we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. And some of these suckers die hard, you know. It's like a Bruce Willis movie. Die hard, but die! Okay? And so here we are, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. So I'll tell you a couple of things about divorce and I'll quit. It's not commanded. I didn't have room on the front. And it's not on the back of yours. <laughs> Here's some things Jesus said about divorce. It's not commanded. It's not necessary. If you love your enemies, then how much more your spouse that offended you? It's not the unpardonable sin. It was allowed, not designed by God. And it's only for cases of fornication or desertion, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So it's important that we see the mercy and the love of God that's covered us, that we give that to those around us, especially our spouses. Wow, God's made us one with them. We've got to be ready to forgive them. But at any rate, sin's a serious thing. It helps us to understand the love of God. It helps us to fight the good fight. Helps us to stay true in evangelism because everybody's in the same boat. Everybody's in need of reconciliation with God. There's not anybody out there. Gandhi didn't make the cut, you know what I mean? 
He did say that. I read his autobiography, which is a hard read. He said, you know, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. But he didn't believe Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He didn't believe he was God in the flesh. He just liked the Christian philosophy. People have to know Jesus. They have to know Jesus, that he died for their sin. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for for Christ Jesus. We thank you for your word, Lord, that you've given it to us, that you've brought it home to us, God, that we have it in our own language. We pray for those that don't have it in their own language, that they might be able to read and hear your voice, God, speaking to them. But God, we have heard, we do hear. God, we want to hear more clearly. Pray that you'd clean out our ears from all the cultural impartations, all the misinterpretations, the misapplications, God, the misunderstandings. Help us to see, not what we've heard, but as you say to us, the prophet, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the one who is the Word of God, the one who loves us and gave himself for us. Help us to know your voice, to know you, God, to make you known, to be salt, to be light, that you might be glorified in us, God. Again, we we ask you these things, God. We know that you work beyond what we can expect or even think to ask. We're so grateful for that, God. Because we don't know how to pray as we ought. We thank you that you make up the difference in every way. We give you praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great day.